The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. And good evening. My name is Nils. I use he, his, and him. I had a little discussion in a, my group in San Francisco. Of why do you need the his and the him? Like once you say he, like isn't that enough? And you know that we came to agreement of, you know, there are examples of when you use your gender, it's he, he is him, it just kind of makes it concrete. It's like, okay. Anyone here for the first time? One, two, three, four, five, six. There's this ancient practice where we just go like this and say, welcome. So can everybody go into it? Welcome. Okay. Do you believe me that it's an ancient practice? <laughs> a little bit of wrong speech, just a little bit of wrong speech. It's not an ancient practice. I just thought it would be fun. Anybody has been coming to Common Ground for more than three months? Raise your hand. More than six months. More than a year. More than three years. Yay! More than five? Six? More than seven, more than 10 years, more than 11. <laughs> it doesn't matter how long we've been practicing. You can always start new, right? Beginner's mind and all that stuff. So I don't know if you were, everybody was here in the beginning when I was saying that uh, I just attended a funeral. And um, you know, death and grief, there's nothing like death and grief to kind of pull you down into the ground and to, to make you also think about life and, and you know, how are you mindfulness in the, how are you, mind, how do you, how are you mindful in the middle of sadness and grief and, and seeing over 200 people, you know, how they're processing. So uh, that's where I'm coming you know, from and uh, tomorrow I'm heading back to San Francisco. So I'm glad to be here. I, I was not expecting to be sitting here, but Mark invited me to, to be here. And uh, you know, I don't take for granted sitting on this chair and everybody who's or on this cushion, everybody who's sat here. And, and um, common ground is really close to my heart. I moved from El Salvador when I was 13, and there were no places like this, you know, especially in St. Paul. And, when I was 16, I wanted to learn how to meditate, and I was looking for places in the St. Paul Public Library. I had a little book, and I was reading and trying, and then I did TM, because it was the only place at the U, you know, when I was 17, and paying my money to get a mantra and meditating. And, and in today's world, is sometimes it's the opposite. There is so much. You can YouTube so many things, and you can buy so many books. It can, it can get very complicated as to how do you practice, you know, when you have hundreds and hundreds of teachers, apps. I use an app. I like the chimes on it. There's a lot of teachers on it. And so we're sitting here just before, and I'm like, you know, talking to Stacy, chairperson of the board. I'm like, oh, what should I talk about? And what, what's? And she goes, what have you been thinking about? And I've been thinking about happiness and liberation, those two words. And um, I think happiness can be a dangerous word. 
I want you to think a little bit about right now of what did you grow up, when you were growing up, what messages did you get surrounding happiness? What images, what, you know, think about when you were 10 or teenager in your society, what does it mean to be happy? With the people that you grew up, what, what, what was that word? Did it have any meaning? I'm going to invite you, not ask you, but invite you, to share that with somebody. And think about how you grew up and, and to bring into mind of like, you know, I grew up, it was never talked about, or it was, but I just got a sense that being happy meant this. We're just going to take, you know, like a minute and a half each person, say your name, your gender pronoun, so introduce yourself, and just sort of ask, what was happiness? What was that word for you when you were growing up? Uh, I usually say that, you know, sometimes it's rare to just have nice conversations. Like, you know, you're at a bar or a coffee shop or at work. So many conversations are superficial. You know, sometimes it's just like, oh, what did happiness mean as a kid? You know, it might be interesting. How many of you could have another half an hour on this? <laughs> Easily, right? It's just like, you know. Yeah, when I was a child, the Civil War in El Salvador started. And, um, you know, my house was destroyed by a bomb when I was inside of the house. And when I got to the U.S., I picked that story to glamorize my suffering. Because I noticed that in the U.S., unlike El Salvador, you say how bad your childhood is. Um, and then it has this tint of you pull yourself by your bootstraps. And so I noticed that in the dorm, you know, because I was very quiet in high school, very, very quiet. I didn't have many friends. But I was the opposite in college. Something happened when I was 16. and The universe was giving me everything I wanted. and I had lots of friends. And I noticed that they would do this. So then I would be like, my house was destroyed by a bomb. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that hasn't happened to me. That's kind of like a new story. Yeah. And I was talking to Ajahn Amaro about this. He's the abbot of this monastery in England now. And because he was living in California, I said, have you noticed this about Americans? He goes, yes. <laughs> he goes, you know, we were sitting about this, and we were in a group, and then this woman raised her hand and said, I was raised in a satanic cult. And everybody's like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> psychologists who used to say, we've all survived childhood if we're here. You know, being a child is tough. Right? And now, now the levels of anxiety and depression in our young people are so high. <coughs> Berkeley, the university in Berkeley, is doing so many research projects and, and cell phones, right? The 
first generation that has never seen the world without this handheld computer. They're doing this where kids don't know how to be patient, how to be bored. You know, we're running this experiment, and I'm not, I'm not pessimistic or optimistic. I, you know, I, I'm, we'll see how it all turns out. But this word happiness, um, so with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who died a multimillionaire, and, and I, I'm still grateful because I went to the Transcendental Meditation Center by the U, and there was this poster that said, the purpose of life is the expansion of happiness. I was like, hmm. My friend Marcus is here. Um, what, what is this expansion of happiness? And recently I've been thinking, I was asking myself, do I want more happiness or do I want liberation? And just before this talk, it's like, well, they don't have to be opposites, right? Can you have both? But, I, you know, in many times in my life I've experienced what in Buddhist cosmology would be called heaven. You know, I've had great food. I've, I've traveled now to like, I don't know, 45, 50 countries. So I've seen very pretty sights. And I've known very pretty people. And the question I remember when, you know, when... Like if you're interested in manifesting, you can go on trainings on manifesting stuff. And I was doing that. I was writing this list. I was like, okay, here it is. So we make goals, and then I remember finishing everything on the list. Like I remember, so this is college, at the U, and I went to India, and I went to England, and I'm like, and I wanna, I wanna graduate with a medal. So once I got the medal, I didn't even finish my senior project because it wasn't about the senior. You know, you had to do certain things to get this medal, and part of it was a senior project. But because I had the medal in my hand. I'm like, I don't have to do the project because I, I, I just wanted the medal to wear. And at that moment when I was thinking about the medal, it's like, is that what life is about? Just making a list of all the things I can get so that a great relationship is going to be this amazing person and a gorgeous house and whatever, you know, living in such a materialistic time, those messages are given to us. I graduated from college. I was applying to grad school and ended up being a monk. And even as a monk, I was getting all this stuff. Like, oh, I want to get to New Zealand. I was sent to the New Zealand monastery. I was there for a year. It was very pretty, very nice. Not a lot of work, you know, in other monasteries, just a lot of work. And I would imagine my life as a monk, all the different routes that I could be. I could be a scholar. I could just go to Sri Lanka and be fed by the villagers and not have many responsibilities. If I would have stayed, I would be the most senior Spanish-speaking monk in the world. And I was getting invitations to go to South America when I had only been a monk for two years. Imagine now. <laughs> you know, big Ajahn. Like, and I remember thinking, like, is that what I want? Like, to be a big Ajahn, it comes from Acharya, which is, means teacher. And in, in Thai, the word Ajahn, they use it for kindergarten teachers. And, and now in, in England, 
Ajahn, you have to practice for 10 years before you get given this title. So I would imagine my life, you know, like, okay, I could be some kind of guru, some kind of teacher. Then what? This is then what question. And I think the questions we ask about our, you know, about our lives, like, or the sentences, like, if only this. What are your if onlys? Like, I have some cousins living in California who are undocumented. And so many aspects of their lives are impacted by not having papers. This word, papers. If I only had papers. And then living in a society that's calling you illegal and, or on the news, right? Or, you, or your safety. Or, and having my cousin have kids who have papers, but she doesn't have papers. And this fear of, like, I might be separated from my kid. So her, if only I had papers. If only I didn't have this cancer. If only my kids were healthy. If only, you know, how many if onlys? Then I would be, and it's true, you know, it would be more pleasant. We could be happier. It's reading the research that if you live in a place that has a more beautiful view, it's better for your nervous system. Okay. And please understand that I'm not dismissing because I see all of that as blessings. If one thing I learned about a monk, my monk years, is that there are four things that in the scriptures it says that you need. Just some some clothing to keep you warm for modesty, enough food, enough medicine, and enough shelter. And the standard is so low. Medicine is fermented urine. Shelter could be just a tree so that you don't get sunburned. You know? And then rag robes. You would just find a rag and then you saw, that, saw them in the, the rice fields of Magadha pattern. That's one of the things that all traditions still have, which is kind of cute. The Tibetans have the rice fields of Magadha, the Zen tradition. Everybody has this pattern of the rags. And everything else is extra. And transcendence or liberation or knowing the way things are without craving doesn't have to do with pleasant or unpleasant. And if you, you know, the Nibbana Sutta, the, the scripture on Nirvana or you know, liberation where there is an uncreated, an unborn, an unoriginated. And that's what a lot of religions are trying to explain. And it can become so incredibly complicated. You know, you can look at the ruins of the universities in India where these monks get degrees and in Thailand, there are monks who have a business card, and they give you the PhDs that they have and the titles that the king has given them and while wearing the robes of a monk. You know, there's a supreme patriarch in Thailand. Well, what a name, right? It's about a patriarchy there. But, you know, 
Well, I was in the Vatican, too. I mean, I'm sitting there. I had been invited because I was living in Italy for three months as a monk, and I ended up in some events in the Vatican. And the uh, representative of the Irish emb- embassy was sitting next to me, and she kept telling me who everybody was. She was hilarious. She's like, the ones with the pink hats do this, and, the blah, blah, blah. and like, <laughs> tell me who the courier, and like, oh, who has all this power in the Vatican. So you can get incredibly sophisticated with religion and miss the point. And to continually ask yourself, am I missing the point in any other way? You know? That's why the five precepts are such a gift. You know, to, to, have, to have that as an anchor. Like it doesn't matter how sophisticated you are, you can still fall into not having integrity. And this happens with people that say, I am a spiritual teacher. And then the shadow side is that they're embezzling money from their congregation. Or they're doing you know, sexual things that they shouldn't be doing. Or they're speaking in ways that they shouldn't. And it's so hurtful for that community. And it doesn't matter how sophisticated you think you are. The five precepts is what keeps you human, you know, what keeps you a regular person. Um, and this liberation that is talked about in, in all the wise traditions that I know, uh, it can seem you know, paradoxical. It can seem because it's only after the fact that some of these things make sense. Like, if you have a moment of true mindfulness, you know, mindfulness with a big M, which is just being here now, a contentment, but also an awareness, a lot of the scriptures make sense. But if you get focused on the scriptures first, and you don't become reflective, then that can be dangerous. Because the scriptures are great. I, you know, in India, before Buddhism, there were different paths on how to do liberation. And one of the paths is the path of the scholar. You can have the path of the ascetic. You can have the path of the service person. You know, there's these different paths. And then sometimes religions is like, no, you need, you need to do service. You know? Or like the angry social justice peace person. You have to do this or the ascetic person who then has judgments on people that are not ascetic. But all of those paths are to lead you to actually shed away um, the stuff, you know, the ego, whatever word, the the false self, the, um, the little dust in their eyes from in Buddhism where you are just saying, this is, this is the present moment. And, um, and I like the word grace because it's a grace to be like that. And when I experienced it, so you know, two hours ago I'm in the service, 22-year-old has died. and it's, The story is more tragic and I'm not going to go into it. But I'm, you know, I'm sitting in this, and this is the sadness. And, and within that, it's such a gift to know that 
that that's just it. It's just sadness being experienced. It's a sad moment. You experience sadness. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. You're hungry. You want to eat. The second noble truth, which is the explanation of when, when this body meets the sense objects and you create that craving, that stickiness, Paticca Samuppada, which is sometimes it's six links, sometimes it's nine links, usually it's the 12 links of how we, be, we come into being, into I, I want something. I am no longer just part of mindfulness of the way it is. I desire something. And desire is not bad. It's that attachment, that not contentment. That's what's sticky. So happiness can be experienced as a contentment that's uncomplicated. First of all, if you're keeping the five precepts, that's going to guard you from all sorts of unhappiness. Yeah? So if you're doing that in a non-moralistic, non-judgmental, because you can be this pious, horrible, five-precept champion, okay, you'll, you'll miss the point. But if you just, you know, now that I've, that I've had this in my life, I, I've never seen adulthood in my life without meditation and without this kind of groundedness. So it's hard for me to compare, but if, I can imagine <laughs> that if you haven't done the five precepts and you're stealing and doing all sorts of things and then you stop, that maybe you find that your life gets better. And in meditation, you know, in concentration practice, you can also experience a happiness that is not sense-based. Sukha and dukkha kind of rhyme. And sukha is sometimes um, described as happiness. It's also a word that it's, it's in Sanskrit. It's used in yoga when you're in a sukha position. You know, it's kind of at, at ease. In yoga, it's at ease. And in meditation practice, if you have the blessing of going on retreat or you have good karma or whatever it is, and you can settle the mind, they talk about piti, sukha, and ekagata in Pali. And you can have this delight, you know. I love telling people when St. Teresa of Avila was having like, woof, you know. It's like, and she was like, is this from the devil or from God? I'm not sure, because it feels really good. You know? it's like, but then after that, the, the mind can settle and experience this sukha and, and this, this pleasantness. And then there's this, the ekagata, the one-pointedness. If you've never experienced that, it can, it can feel like, ooh, now I'm enlightened, or, oh, I want more of this. And I was quite curious why, in England, they never talked about the jhanas, which is concentration practice. And I finally got it that they said, oh, you know, Westerners are so greedy that if you talk about it, they're just going to want these states, and they're going to get distracted, so it's better not to talk about it. It's too dangerous to talk about the jhanas because they're going to want it. Um, 
Well, what's funny is that Ajahn Chah, the teacher of my teacher, um, talked about the jhanas but never used the J word. I used to call it the J word. And Ajahn Suchita, who I lived with for a while, and I, I didn't like his monastery that much. It was a little too dry for me. But I noticed that he had a little pamphlet on like beginning meditation practice. And then I was reading it, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you just described first jhana. But never use the word. So sometimes, you know, in, in meditation, as you become adept in, in, in meditating, this can happen, and then you experience happiness that is not sense-based, and then that gives you some perspective. And, you know, I'm so considering now because I, I, I get invited to teach in San Francisco, and, and I try to think, well, what, what's going to be useful? And... If you get familiar with a lot of these words and concepts, but you're not practicing, you can get stuck with the words. You, know, you can get incredibly adept at talking about Buddhism or any kind of ism. And... Um, You know, at some point, you wake up in the morning and you feel the anxiety or you feel the dread of going to work or whatever it is that you're feeling, but there's something in the background as well that is saying there's something above all of this. You know, in, in the Vajrayana tradition, they talk about three different levels and in Hinduism, they talk about these different kinds of realities. You know, I took a a year course on Indian religions. And my final exam was three little of those books, the the little blue essay books. And it said, Om, expand. (laughs) And that was my final exam. Because Om can be divided into A-U-M, Om. And each one of those represents three kinds of reality. So and the different realities of waking, dreaming, and then there's the big mindfulness. What in some traditions they call God, actually. And when you see yourself, you know, like unity consciousness can sound really interesting. But even that's not it. And at some point, I'm, I'm seeing in my life to say, am I ready to not be reborn again? St. John of the Cross, who was a friend of St. Teresa of Avila. I grew up a Catholic in, in liberation theology. St. John of the Cross used to say, muero porque no muero. I'm dying because I don't die. Like I, the little I, doesn't die. And it's this invitation, you know, that the, the complete humility, the complete letting go of everything that's just superficial, all our masks. Like to have the courage, and this is the thing, once you decide that you are curious about this, there's no going back. You know, you have to say, yeah, I'm interested in liberation. 
But if you really say that to yourself, there's no going back. <laughs> and it's purification galore. You know, everything, your karma ripens, all this stuff happens, it can break your heart, it can, all these things can happen, but it's to see reality the way it is. And, um, and it's not about happiness, you know? It's the end of dukkha, knowing the way it is. And, and obviously, I mean, the, the flip side of that is that when you have perspective and you have compassion and all of this, it's, it's such a lovely way to live. And I've seen it in my life. Like sometimes I go back in, in, in vignettes in my life, in parts of my life, where my toolbox has been right there. You know, I was coming in Duluth, and then the, the car hit this black ice, and we went down. And as we were going down on this hill, I just kind of went in the fetal position. And I'm like, oh, I hope it's a nice death if it is. But if not, I'm going to protect my face. So I don't <laughs> so, but you know, in, just, in just these few seconds, I'm like, I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to die. But I remember that I was just kind of at peace with this. And then when we landed, we landed sideways. And then I'm like touching to see, like, did I break something? And not know. And then I'm touching my, you know, my friend who was driving was freaking out. And we had two dogs in the back. And the whole thing is... And, and, you know, once we got out of the car, I was present enough to calm him down. And they flipped the car, and then we just drove back after a while <laughs> in the snow. And, you know, and the conversation was like, can you imagine if we just would have broken up a little finger, we would be in the hospital. But we didn't, and we're just driving. And now your insurance is going to pay for, you know, your new paint job, which we didn't. And so we talked about gratitude on the way back. And I remember thinking, this comes out of my practice. So this, this sit that we had here, maybe it was unpleasant. Maybe we're like, oh, I don't know how to meditate. Whatever it was that you experienced is something that maybe you didn't do it for right now. Maybe the benefits of your sit are going to be somewhere else. Sometimes it's so gradual that other people notice. So I want to give you another, with the person that you were talking to, if you want. Um, what's resonating? Um, have I also said something that kind of annoyed you and you need to process that? Sometimes it's good to do that. Um, what's coming up for you as you hear me talk? I always say my, my talks are just kind of like, the word I use is jazzy, because it's kind of like <laughs> jazz. I never know what mood and whatever mood, you know, like I'm actually, I'm feeling in kind of in a quiet mood, you know, it's kind of, but at the same time, like I'm here, I'm sharing what I can, and um, is there something that you resonated with or that you have more questions or that you want to explore with somebody? So in groups of two or three, um, what's, what's coming up for you? And I'll ring the bell, raise my hand. So about three minutes, okay? Three minute mini check. Go ahead. If it feels like you could have kept on talking, I invite you to have these conversations with the people in your life. Hey, happiness, what's up? 
And so happiness, I want to talk about the positive side of happiness. I don't, you know, I don't want to make it sound like happiness is bad, liberation is great. When you work on your happiness, you're honoring your ancestors and you're giving hope to the young ones. I say that to my people of color group in San Francisco. Ancestors in this country are, you know, it's a complicated word um, because there are so many people that have immigrants as their ancestors. So many times we don't know names, we don't know pictures. I mean, now we have DNA, you know, the explosion of people that have done DNA uh, stuff where you spit on this little thing, you send it. I did it. Happens I have 5% of my DNA is African. I didn't know that. I have some French. I didn't know that. And so on. But when you're happy, when you work to your happiness, it's a huge gift to the world. First of all, because happy people are not mean. Hmm? Right? It's another bumper sticker saying that I tell my teenagers. Why would you want to be a bully if you're a happy person? It just makes absolutely no sense. And then you can have compassion to the bullies. I mean, a great Nicaraguan healer that I know, she says, and having compassion doesn't mean that you're like, ooh, you know, so you can see a, a dog with rabies and you have compassion, but you're like, you stay away from me. You know? <laughs> I mean, like you, you still need to protect yourself, even though you understand that it's not the dog, it's the rabies. And um, depending on how you grew up, depending on the messages that you get, if you have been a recipient of oppression, you know, we are still living in a world where oppression happens. And you can have those negative messages of shame, whatever it is. So whatever that you do for healing, it's a gift for the world. Anytime you invest in that therapy, it's a gift for the world. If you buy yourself flowers and you put them on your table and you make that space pretty, that's a gift for the world. And it's not the same as materialism, where you just you know, want to order everything on Amazon. It's going to come tomorrow, you know. But it's something to be aware of because we are living in an extremely materialistic society and time. And when you're in that extreme, extreme, extreme that we are, you have to guard yourself. And so having that discernment, you know, and to ask, yeah, is this going to make me happy? You can have all these philosophies like Mary Kondo, right? Like, does this give me joy? And other people are like, no, don't get rid of your stuff. Yes, get rid of your stuff. You can have debates about what to do with your stuff. <laughs> Keep it, blah, 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 blah. You, know, you can get caught up. The relationship with this body. How many pounds I have to lose, or I'm aging, or whatever it is. Someone said, you know, I turned 50 in a few weeks. I know I only look 47. But. <laughs> no, but seriously, right? Like ageism, even that joke has some ageism in it, where youth is celebrated. 
And if you're fortunate enough to age, well, your body's going to change. But we're living in a confusing society where now, you know, people that are 72, you can look at them and like, I don't know if you're 52 or 72. And this is not judgmental, by the way. You know, people can do, it's their life. But it could be confusing where when youth is celebrated so much that you think, I will be happy if I look young. Is that what it is? Is that what, is that what we're saying? Or, you know, I'm so smart. Well, if I'm aging, I, I didn't know I had such great memory until now that I'm kind of losing it. You know? Like, <laughs> I was like, wow. I was, you know, just noticing that cognitively. I come from a family of scholars. My dad is the founder of a university, and he's like a chancellor, right? And on my mom's side, we have all these teachers. And I'm a teacher, so reading and all of this, is, is that what it is? You're so smart. <laughs> so you can get attached to these things. You know, sometimes you think like, so if you get enlightened and then you get Alzheimer's, does that cancel your enlightenment? <laughs> Like, how does, is enlightenment about cognitive ability? I used to think also, did dinosaurs have Buddha nature? Like, could a dinosaur get enlightened? Because they were around for quite a long time on this earth. Why were they around? I mean, that can be kind of just useless questions. <laughs> but to be that reflective of, you know, how am I defining happiness? And that's where the word contentment is so magical. You know? Contentment. Not an American value, as far as I can tell. Say, right now, things are okay. I don't need anything right now. Because we can always want stuff. That's been one of the biggest lessons of my life, is to know the difference between a want and need. In conflict resolution, find out what the two parties want, but really focus on what they need. And if you focus on what those two parties or three parties need, then you can get some progress. But the discernment, discernment to say, what do you want, what do you need? And contentment is such a Ah, Buddhist value, you know, in the Theravada tradition, it's in the Metta Sutta, it's, in, it's, it's mentioned so many times. You know, and, you know, for monks it was contentment with little. But just for anybody to reflect, have I ever felt contentment? Ask yourself that. And if you have, when was it? How did it feel? And if you've never have felt contentment, Maybe become curious about it. <laughs> Niroda, the third noble truth. You know, it's it's this state of of not craving, of not craving. That's why all of these scriptures, you know, the noble eightfold path, and take them as reflection, not as like, ooh, the big heavy truth. And I've been so grateful in my life to have those Four Noble Truths. You know, it's, it's based on 
Ayurvedic medicine, the way it's taught. You know, there's a disease. There's the cause for the disease. You have your prognosis, and then you have your treatment. And so it's presented as a, as a statement of dukkha, and then this attachment to craving. And if you become curious, it's, it get, curiosity has all this energy. What's in that box, right? I, I bet all of you have felt curious about something. And it's real, right? Like you're feeling this curiosity. And that will give you some spiritual energy. Huh. What's that like? What's that like? Which it doesn't have that shame of I'm not good enough or Ooh, I'm not a good Buddhist, I'm not a good meditator, whatever. So much of that. You can get to a place of ease. And that's when you can have space to receive the gift of gratitude, the gift of forgiveness, all of these gifts. You can't, you can't create gratitude. That's not possible. You can open yourself to it. You can read books about it. You can do all these practices. You can have journals. And then at some point, you feel it. You know what I'm saying? You know what it feels like when you feel gratitude. You're not, it's not here. I would say people, you know, I've seen people cry when they feel grateful. It's like, oh, yeah, thank you. That's a kind of, of mindfulness. It's, it's, you know, the definition in the Pali scriptures is knowing what you have received, knowing what you have received, and then being mindful of it. Not taking things for granted. And that's happiness. Imagine if you get the gift of forgiveness. That's happiness. You can't, you can't force yourself to forgive. In my experience, humans can't decide to forgive. You can decide to be open to forgiving. In my Latino family, you know, we, we use resentment really well. <laughs> and you resentment and, and, and punish people by not forgiving them. But it's toxic, because my two aunts who don't forgive, they're not happy. And so forgiveness is just simply letting go of the hurt. It doesn't mean you approve, but it's a kind of mindfulness. It's a kind of receptivity, in my mind. I'm not defining these are not, don't take it as like, oh, this is like big truth. But no, like in the way, when I reflect, and you're able to, like, you know, every time I step through common ground, I just, I just feel happy. Like, oh, there's this place that exists. You know, it makes me happy to be here. And that's, it's not coming from, like, ah, oh, I, I want something. But when you finally get to generosity as something that gives you joy, this is, I, I'm going to be honest with you, this is new for me. My aunt says that it's because we're Capricorn, that we don't like to give easily. I don't know if this is true or not, because I, I don't know about astrology very much. But for me, giving, you know, I, I've had this thing about I don't spend what I don't have. I, I'm very careful with my money. And, but giving was kind of like not as easily. And now I'm, I'm really learning to, to do it in a better way. And it's fun. <laughs> but it's a new, it's a new gift for me. 
to experience this dana. And, and I've been practicing for a long time. But I also understand that generosity is the beginning of the path and the end of the path. So generosity is happiness. So as always, I feel a privilege of being here. And uh, I, uh, two blocks from my place, there's this church that I go to now. And um, they call it the gayest Catholic church in the country. <laughs> it's in the Castro district. And they wrote a book called Gays and Grace about how the, the church was dying and, and they, um, the AIDS epidemic hit the Castro gay area really bad. And all these elderly people and these gay people got together and they made the church come alive. And I go to get some ritual because in a lot of um, European-based Buddhism, the ritual was erased. And in San Francisco, a lot of those groups don't have ritual. So I go get my ritual at the Catholic Church. There's candles, and there's singing, and there's standing, and there's sitting, and there's doing this. And I, and I also go to their meditation group. Uh, centering prayer is very similar to Buddhist meditation. And they do this practice of passing a basket for money. So I'm giving a dana talk right now. And sometimes they pass the basket a second time because they'll say, right now, we're going to help the homeless at this center. You know, there's so many homeless people in San Francisco. Or we're going to help that little elementary school or whatever it is. So I'm saying this because I, you know, I wasn't expecting to be here. And I, I think there's going to be Donna given and there might be Donna given for me and my friend. She asked that no flowers be given, but that um, um, that the money be given for uh, teen suicide prevention. So whatever money is given, um, I'll honor their wishes and give that to uh, the teen suicide. And it gives me joy, you know, in the sadness that uh, these organizations exist. And, and every time we wake up and we decide to live and go on with our lives, we honor our ancestors and we give hope to our young ones. If there is. Um, Anything that I've said that has been misleading, offensive, boring, whatever, I ask for your pardon. And if there's anything that I have said that has been useful, that you can use for your practice, I want you to multiply it, share it, take it in, become curious. May this time that we have spent here together, we could have been watching a movie, doing all sorts of things, but we're here practicing. May this time benefit all living beings, because all living beings want to be happy. And maybe all work towards liberation. 
for being here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.